Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. What's up, you? <clears throat> well, I tell you, this morning I uh, drinking out of this coffee cup, and it just broke. The handle broke off, and I think it's funny because I got the mug for Father's Day last year, and it's almost Father's Day this year, and all of a sudden the handle's broken off, and I feel like you know, in the old days when. Uh, I don't know if they did this. I think they did. But they were certainly accused of um, Apple would throttle the old iPhone performance so that people would be incentivized to buy a new one, you know, and not sit on an old one for years and years, keep spending that money. And, and that happened in my coffee cup, you guys. So one year almost to the day, the uh, handle breaks off the coffee cup. My, my Father's Day mug. Just in time for another Father's Day gift. Coincidence? I think not. I think um, they didn't count on the super glue industry helping me out, though. All right, you guys, what are we doing? What are we doing today? Today, we're getting back to the Young's Greatest Pupil series, and we're jumping back into Eric Neumann, uh, who we started with. So I'm excited about it. Uh, today is going to be pretty dense, so I'm going to do my absolute best for you. But as a refresher, uh, we started doing the Young's Greatest Pupil, Pupil series along with reading Young. So it's been interesting. We've been reading Young's masterwork, The Origin and History of Consciousness, um, or the, the Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious, Neumann's book, uh, The Origins and History of Consciousness, and von Franz's uh, book, um, uh, Archetypal Images and Fairy Tales, something like that. And we're doing them all at once. So we've been getting this interesting perspective of the teacher and the students um, over a period of basically 100 years. Um, it's been really interesting. <clears throat> I've been learning a whole bunch along the way. Hopefully you guys too. This one was, this one was difficult. Um, I had to go over this one multiple times. Um, so hopefully it pays off. But just to recap where we started when we did Neumann uh, so we can retrace our breadcrumbs. Um, what Neumann was doing in the first chapter of his book was talking about the Ouroboros. So if you remember that, and you should if you listen to these podcasts because we, I talk about it ad nauseum, but the Ouroboros is this symbol, this symbolic image that is referenced in basically world mythology, uh, going back to the various er earliest myths that we have. Uh, the image is something like the yin and the yang symbol or um, or the snake swallowing its tail. So you've got this unbroken circle, you know, uh, represented by the snake swallowing its tail. It's something that is, that 
doesn't have a beginning or end. You know, it's in the shape of a circle. It's something that emerges from itself. You know, the snake swallowing its tail is something that seems to be emerging from within itself. You know, it's it's a symbol of the self-created. And so it's a symbol of God. It's a symbol of the origins of the beginning. And that's where we started. But what Neumann's doing, you have to remember, these guys are all psychologists. So even though we're talking about myths and religion and all that sort of thing, um, he, he's going to, and all of these people are going to overlay these stories with their psychological significance. And it's really interesting. To me, one of the most interesting things I've, I've got into in my life, I, I think it's amazing. And so Neumann will talk about the Ouroboros from this mythological perspective, but then he also talks about what it means from a psychological point of view or where those stories might have come from. And if you remember when he talks about the Ouroboros and he tries to relate that to um, consciousness, uh, the story basically goes back to the myth, which says that everything was, was one in the beginning. Everything was a completeness, a wholeness, a oneness. Any mystics out there are going to understand what I mean by that. Everything was one, undifferentiated, undi- you know, indistinct, um, <clears throat> unformed, you know, something like potential. And from that potential, uh, that's something that they will often refer to as the unconscious. You know, from that potential comes consciousness. And from the mythological perspective, from that potential comes the cosmos, comes the created universe, and you and me and everything, everything included. And so those stories overlap each other. And even the way that the Ouroboros is described when, when, it, when talked about as a wholeness, you know, as opposites in union, that when opposites are united, you basically have something at rest, something at peace. Um, but it's also simultaneously generative, you know. When you bring opposites together, I always bring bring up the example of uh, the male and the female or masculine and feminine. If you bring them together, what you have is an image, something like sex. And of course, that's a generative act. You know, something is born from that. And it, from the psychological perspective, what's born from that is sentience, our consciousness. From a mythological perspective, what's born from that is the world, the universe. And the connection is really fundamental. The connection is this, that what we experience consciously is the universe. So the story about the birth of consciousness and the birth of the universe are one story. Because to us, whether you like it or not, there isn't much of a distinction, if any, right? What we're conscious of is the universe. It's the moment we open up our eyes and see for the first time what we see is an experience, right? A sight experience of what? Of the fucking universe, everything around us and ourselves, you know? So the stories are, are connected. And when you trace that all the way back to the beginning, to this Ouroboros, again, opposites in union, what you have here is something that is described as perfection, you know? And when consciousness tries to begin to emerge from the unconscious, when, when the Ouroboros is no longer one thing. <clears throat> it, well, it's a process. It's something that there's starts and stops. You know, consciousness can't break free of, un- of unconsciousness all at once. It has to try and try and try. And every time it fails and it sinks back into the unconscious, it's something like pleasure. It's something like peace. And, 
And Neumann related that to the experience of, well, fetal consciousness, to the experience of, of our lives before we were born, you know? That during that time, we were a part of our mother. So our mother was the universe, you know, for, for lack of a better analogy. Uh, but also, our mother was ourself. You know, we hadn't quite become fully independent of our mother. And so, you know, we're constantly being nourished. We never have to cry and ask for a bottle. We're just constantly being nourished. We're constantly warm and floating around in our amniotic fluid. We're, it's just like imagine sunbathing in a pool with a corona in your hand. That was our life you know, before we were born. And so there's something about going back into the Ouroboros of, of losing our self and merging back in with the universe, becoming whatever, whatever we once were, that that's something that is desirable. It's something that is peaceful and pleasant and joyful. And uh, anybody who's had a mystic experience, an ego death experience, knows what that's like. And that's why it's hard to break free. That's why consciousness could, didn't just willy-nilly pop out of unconsciousness and say, here I am. Because the draw pulling us back into unconsciousness is so great. We don't want to, you know? It's like we have to conquer our own desire to not be conscious. Isn't that amazing? And so that's that's the story of the Ouroboros in the beginning and this separation of the Ouroboros that that indicates the start of the universe, creation. And so what what these psychologists do a step further from that is they connect they connect these stories about our consciousness and the birth and development of our consciousness to our religious stories, the myths that we've been telling ourselves and our children for you know for couple hundred thousand years in, anyway, um, since before we were human beings, you know, the stories that we tell and pass along, they go way, way back, deep, deep, deep in our history. You know, we even see evidence of it in uh, Neanderthals and maybe even in uh, Homo erectus. So there's symbolic thought happening even in pre-human primates. So it goes way, way back. So this basically leads us up to this next bit where we're talking about the Ouroboros being separated, um, the opposites being separated. And it's kind of an interesting symbolic idea because there's got to be something that separates something that once was together, you know? Um, you got There's something that must be done to separate the opposites. If they were, if in the beginning they were one thing, well, what's done to separate them? And the myth is tell, tells an interesting story. It says that that the Ouroboros gives birth to something, and that new thing is what separates the opposites. And you can th you can imagine that with the yin and the yang symbol because you have that perfectly interesting squiggle that goes down the middle that separates the black half from the white half. See, that line, which, by the way, is in the shape of a snake, you know, a slithering line, uh, which will become important in a bit, um, that line is, is us. It's consciousness. Consciousness is born from the Ouroboros, and it's the thing that separates chaos and order, light and dark, you know, the opposites, consciousness and unconsciousness. And the story we're going to hear about today is exactly that. It's the process of, of 
separating the Ouroboros and what that means, what that means for us and what that means for the Ouroboros. This is this, the story continues, you know. All right, so um, the splitting process is something that, that we see in this fractal way. Like once it happens, once the opposites in the Ouroboros, you know, the consciousness and unconsciousness or masculine and feminine or subject and object, whatever you want to call it, once that gets separated, it's like there's this fractal domino effect that, that happens for the rest of reality. You know, the moment consciousness emerges, there's a difference now between consciousness and unconsciousness. But between all kinds of things, between good and bad, you know, good and evil, between man and animal, you know, masculine and feminine, and the whole world breaks up into these into this bifurcation. Everything splits off like the tongue of a serpent, one direction and the other. And we're going to learn about that today. So the con the continual process of bifurcation creates symbolically and maybe physically the multiplicity of the world. Today we will see how the experience of consciousness and its development are mirrored in our creation stories and the myths that have always accompanied our lives. Gods and goddesses, heroes and anti-heroes, acting out the struggle of our consciousness. Like a play about our inner lives, which bleed out ever more into the external world. And that's, that's what's so interesting, this blending of our myths with our, with our conscious experience. So let's get into it. I'm going to call this episode, um, well, it's Young's Greatest Pupils Part 3. We're doing Eric Neumann. I'm going to call this one Maga Mater, which means the Great Mother. Here we go. Neumann says, When the ego begins to emerge from its identity with the Ouroboros, and the embryonic connection with the womb ceases, the ego takes up a new attitude to the world. All right, this is interesting. I think the story that relates to this is really something like the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, it says this, when, e when ego begins to emerge, that's consciousness. When that begins to emerge, it, I, it, it starts to have an identity of its own. It no longer thinks that it is one with the Ouroboros. It, it has its own s sense of self. So now it feels like it's separate somehow from the Ouroboros where it, <clears throat> from where it came. And it, and it he, he, Neumann describes it by saying the embryonic connection with the womb ceases. Right? This is the this is the fetus in in the womb becoming aware that it's its own thing, and when that happens, it takes up a new attitude to the world. So why do I say that that relates to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? Because when when consciousness, when the ego takes up a new attitude towards the world, what it what it means is the place the place that it came from, the place in which it exists, the Ouroboros. So the ego takes a new attitude towards the Ouroboros. It no longer thinks that it is the same as the Ouroboros. It now thinks that it's its own thing. So that's how the attitude changes. And that's something that I would call knowledge of good and evil. The same thing Adam and Eve got when they ate the fruit in the, in the garden. Um, why? Because imagine this. If you... If you didn't know that you were distinct from your mother as a fetus, if you thought you were just part of your mother, you didn't have an identity or, or a self of your own, you, did, you also don't have a will of your own, right? Things just happen. 
things that happen aren't good or bad. They're just things that happen because they're not happening to you exactly, right? So the moment you have independence, the moment you have a will of your own, then the will of your mother becomes something that could be either good or bad, right? According to you, because you're the one now who has to who has your own existence standing on your own two feet who who experiences the will of your mother. So imagine that's like the will of God. It's like it's like the laws of nature. And those things now have a valence to you. They have a they have an emotional um, value, right? Either good or bad. That's the knowledge of good and evil. If you don't have a self, there is no good or evil. It's only when you have a self do you start to make a distinction between something that's good or bad because it's good or bad in relationship to you. So you have to exist first. And that's the new attitude that Jung's talking about, or that Neumann's talking about here. The new attitude that we have towards the world around us, the place where we find ourselves, the place that gave birth to us, but the place where we find ourselves. He goes on, he says, Detachment from the Ouroboros means descending into the world of reality. The ego becomes aware of pleasure and pain, and from them experiences its own pleasure and pain. All right, so this is subtle but interesting. So he's saying that once, the, once consciousness detaches itself from the Ouroboros, once it becomes its own thing, and you can put yourself back in the, in the position of a fetus within your mother, let's say, it says the ego becomes aware of pleasure and pain. Of course you would because you're an ego now. You're self now. And if there's pleasure and pain going on, you're now experiencing them. It's not just your mother experiencing them because you're there too. You're experiencing them. And what happens here is those feelings of pleasure and pain become your own sensation of pleasure and pain. So why is that significant? Because for the first time, Experience belongs to you, right? Because you exist apart from your mother now. Because consciousness has broken free from unconsciousness, you're your own thing. So you're experiencing pleasure and pain for the first time. Before you were your, your own ego consciousness, when you were just part of your mother, the pleasure and pain were an experience of your mother exclusively. But now you're in on this. Now you're your own thing. So experience belongs to you for the first time. That's so significant. All right, then he says, The wicked, devouring mother and the good mother, lavishing affection, are two sides of the great Ouroboric mother goddess who reigns over this psychic stage. So now we're going to start seeing a blending of myth with the, our actual experience of consciousness. And it's strange, but try to think about this symbolically. Just like your mother is ruler of this, of the of your world, whilst you're part of her, you know, whilst you're a fetus, let's say. The same thing is true. The same thing is true of our um, mythological understanding of ourselves in the cosmos. Instead of our, it being our actual mother, we're going to call this something like the great mother the great mother goddess, you know, we're going to extract that out and say, we're still existing in the womb of our mother. We're just going to call that planet earth, or we're going to call that, you know, nature or something like that. 
and we can tell a story about it with our myths. And so we get this blending, this blending of uh, our actual experience of burgeoning consciousness and our earliest understanding of our place in the world. I also want to point out that there's this double-sided effect. Remember, once the Ouroboros is separated, um, everything becomes separated. And so you, this is what you see. The explanation for this, it goes back to the self, you know. The great mother goddess, as soon as you become a self, you recognize has good and bad components. And so it's, it's an easy step, mythologically, to make these now two goddesses, a good one and a bad one, right? The, the wicked devouring mother and the good mother lavishing affection. But they're two sides of what was what we once understood as the Ouroboros, you know? So experiencing a bifurcated great mother comes with the dawn of ego consciousness. So the I, you know, you and I, has a will of its own so that the will of the great mother can be seen as good if it corresponds to the will of the ego or evil if it doesn't. And interestingly, Buddhism and Taoism both teach the loss of will as a religious practice, you know? You don't you shouldn't will anything for yourself. You should, you know, you should give that back um, to the great mother. You should give that will back to where it came from, and somehow that's going to end your suffering, which which is the goal of Buddhism. Taoism uses the word inaction. You know, do nothing, go with the flow. Follow the will of nature. Don't have a will of your own. Because if you don't want things for yourself, if you don't have desires, then you won't have suffering. So this is one path to end the suffering of existence. And I just think that's interesting that you see this correspondence here. So now we're going to look at the mythic side of this. And we're going to go back and forth. So I just want to point out this is sort of a, the mythological understanding or the mythological perspective. And it goes like this. The overwhelming might of the unconscious, the devouring, destructive aspect, is seen figuratively as the blood-stained goddess of death, plague, famine, flood, and the force of instinct. As the good mother, she is fullness and abundance, the dispenser of life, the earth, the cornucopia of the fruitful womb. She is mankind's instinctive experience of mother nature, who daily fulfills the promise of new life and new birth. So you see what I mean? The Great Mother is now seen in our myths in a very particular way. And she starts to pick up associations. Now this is important because this is how myths develop. And this is what throws people about religion and they think it's all make-believe and hooey. Because how could you take this experience of the Ouroboros or this experience of a great mother from a psychological perspective, you know, the place where we were born, the, um, you know, our origins. And we can paint this abstract idea up in all sorts of ways and turn it into all these different gods and goddesses and, you know, whatever. How does that happen? Well, this is how it happens. It happens in a, in a very postmodern way. This is the one thing that I'll talk about from postmodernism that I, that I can really see and it ties in with this, um, with this uh, depth psychology really well. And it's the idea that meaning is elusive. 
when we study language, we find this really, really easily. That if you're trying to describe for somebody, like Socrates did, the definition of a word, a word that you know and understand well, and everyone around you does too. Like, what is beauty? And nobody can fucking answer that question for Socrates. And the postmodernists say, say the exact same thing. Why can you not get to the heart of what is beauty? Because every time you try, what you're doing is not telling me what beauty is. You're giving me a synonym. You're giving me another word, another symbol that means something like it. Okay, so you might say beautiful, you might say pretty, you might say attractive, you might say gorgeous, you might say symmetrical, you might say all kinds of things to try to tell me what beauty means. Um, and all of those words mean slightly different things. So how in the fucking world are you giving me synonyms helping me understand what this concept is? How? And Jung gives us the answer. He talks about this cloud of associations. The same thing that happens to us when we're trying to under, understand something that we, we really can't. You know, a paradox or a mystery. When we're trying to understand something beyond our understanding, we take a look at what associations these ideas evoke in us. It's like we're looking to our unconscious to help give us hints about what the meaning is. And if you take all of these associations as a whole you know, symmetry and attraction and all this stuff, then suddenly you start to understand what's, what's common among them, the thread that runs through the cloud of associations. If you can follow that trail of breadcrumbs, then you can c come up with some understanding of that which you cannot understand, and it's beautiful. And it turns out that's what happens with all of our symbols, even the language, even the words you're hearing coming out of my mouth right now, all of it meaningless except for the fact that every word I speak has a cloud of associations for you. And they're unique. There's overlap, but unique for everybody. And somehow we understand the gist. Somehow that meaning is cohesive to us. It's a fucking mystery how that happens. But it's also a mystery how these symbolic images in our myths and our religion have done the same thing. They've taken our experience. We've painted it into a picture and the picture has, it's absolutely brimming, pregnant with meaning. And we have to figure out what that, what that thread is. And so that's what we're going to see here. These abstract psychological concepts, how they become gods and goddesses. So when we're talking about the unconscious, we're talking about a couple of things. The place that we come from. The origin the place that we, don't, that we don't understand and we don't seem to have direct contact with, but something that we carry with us. You know, we're partly, partly unconscious, you know. I've said this before, but there are all sorts of things that we do that are unconscious. You know, thinking, you know, by and large is an unconscious process. Breathing and having our heart beating and all that stuff, unconscious. Uh, dreaming, unconscious, all these sorts of things. We, so we're, we carry that with us, you know. But that's the same place that gave us birth and the whole cosmos birth, the unconscious. So what the fuck does that mean? It's something that we return to when we die. It's oblivion, the same, the same as it is our place of origin. It's oblivion. So how do we make sense of that? Well, we call that thing the blood-stained goddess of death. But we also call it the good mother full of abundance, the dispenser of life, the cornucopia of the fruitful earth. We call, we call the unconscious all of those things. 
And you might think, well, that's a stretch. But is it? You're trying to understand something that's at once your origin and, and, and place of, of death. The beginning and the end at once. So wouldn't you call that some, some, something like the goddess of birth and death? Wouldn't, wouldn't you? I mean, is, that's not a far stretch to me. And then you get all these associations. Death, right? But then every, everything that causes death, plague and sickness and famine and flood and disaster, now all that stuff gets attached as associations with this idea of the unconscious. But then we also have to take a look at the life-giving components. The earth, you know, the, the fruitful part. And so we have all these other images and associations on the flip side. The polar opposite that get associated with this idea of unconscious. So the great mother is an archetype. And like all archetypal images, corresponds to an unconscious instinct. These are its cloud of associations. Unconsciousness, instinctual forces, wild animals, by the way, because they're controlled by their instincts. So the moment you say the unconscious is connected to instincts which Carl Jung does with the archetypes, then you have to also understand that images of animals might come to mind. And the fruitfulness and the giving birth part oftentimes will bring images of growth, you know, vegetable life and new birth and things like that. And you collect more and more images that form this cloud of associations. And so the unconscious becomes something like all of these things. And it becomes much easier to paint a picture of her. And you can call that pretend if you want to, but is it? Symbolic, but I don't think it's pretend. All right, he goes on, he says, Over against all this, ego consciousness remains small and impotent. It feels itself a little island floating on the vast expanse of the primal ocean. For the primitive ego, everything is still wrapped in the watery abyss with no sense of separateness. So again, just put yourself back in the, in the fetal consciousness. Um, when you first start becoming a self of your own, you find yourself wrapped in this vast expanse of the primal ocean. What is that? That's this all your needs satisfied floating around in the amniotic fluid or fl- floating around in, you know, in the, in the uh, gametes or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, that you feel like a little island amidst this larger thing, your mother. And that's how we feel, you know, as human beings existing in the cosmos. We feel like we're little islands floating in this expanse of cosmos. So we have this parallel from the birth of consciousness and our development to our conscious existence. So this description has fractal parallels in the experience of the fetus's burgeoning consciousness, but also of the mythological worldview of the earliest people. They see the cosmos coming into being and consciousness coming into being as one and the same story, as a struggle to manifest, you know? And that's something like the first hero story, the struggle of your own consciousness to break free of its source to become an independent person from your mother and father. That that's something that we're going to continue to tell stories about in our religious traditions, the hero stories. You know, Moses and Zoroaster and Muhammad and all of them. 
All right, he goes on, he says, this same horror of nameless lurking forces, so think about that like the unconscious, is, is known also to the child. In him dwells this primitive dread which comes from an outside world, contaminated with the inside, and made mysterious by projection, as we see in the animistic world picture. This dread is an expression of the dawn situation when a small and feeble ego pits itself against the cosmos. Jesus. So this is interesting. You know, you've heard this uh, said before, but there are things like that come to mind where Jesus said, be like little children, you know, to enter the kingdom of God. There's this idea that children are closer to, you know, an instinctive or intuitive understanding of where they come from and the mysteries of the world because everything is mysterious to a child. You know, everything's full of magic and mystery. And, well, there's some there's some very fundamental truth in that. So to look at the world through the eyes of a child is like looking at the world more completely or more truly than somebody who's an adult, somebody who's, you know, um, already uh, acclimated, you know, to, to consciousness. But when it's new to you, what happens is, this is an interesting way of putting it, but he says that the outside world becomes contaminated by the inside. And the world is made mysterious by projection. And what this means is that there's all sorts of things about a child itself that it doesn't understand. There's lots of mysteries, not only about the world, but about what it is, you know, what a child is that they don't understand. And their the experience of the first chunk of their life is trying to figure that out. And whenever you have, from a psychological perspective, whenever you have things about yourself that you don't understand or that you that you can't embrace for one reason or another, you project them out into the world. And we, we used this example before, but if you're cheating on your wife and you're constantly, um, you know, accusing her of cheating or worried about her cheating, you know, that's something you're doing to yourself. You're projecting it on her because of your own guilt that you're not dealing with. This is the idea that a child will have all of these things within themselves that they don't understand and they will project them out into the world around them, which they also don't understand as a way for them to approach and, and engage with themselves. And you see that in particular with, with kids when they first have social interactions with other kids, you know, learning what other kids are like in order to find out what they're like, you know. It's a very beautiful thing to watch. Um, but it also makes the world dangerous. You know, kids look at the world as intimidating and they need to be brought into it slowly. And uh, that fear of the outside world what Neumann is saying is really a fear of their inside. It's a fear of who, what they are because they don't understand it. And it's projected out into the world, you know, this fear uh, of the unknown. And then he relates this to an animistic world picture, which is just a, a, a reference to our earliest religious beliefs. Think about tribal people, na you know, nature worshipers of all kinds um, in, a, in a primitive setting. You know, think about sub-Saharan African tribes. Think about Native American tribes or Aboriginal Australian tribes. Think about, um, you know, the Stone Age cultures for, uh, and Neolithic cultures from Europe and Asia, that type of thing. These are people who believed that the world was imbued with spirits. 
the spirit of the sun in the sky, the spirit of the earth and the trees, the spirit of the, you know, uh, the rivers and, and um, every animal has a spirit and so do you and I and all this. This is how they see the world as imbued with this mystical spirit. That's the way that a child, even though they wouldn't maybe put it in those words, that's the way a child looks at themselves in the world. You know, there's something there. There's a spirit, an animating spirit there that's a, a complete mystery and a complete miracle. And they see it everywhere. They don't understand it. And that's something that a stage of development that all of us go through. So we should all be able to understand. And maybe you put yourself back in the mind of a child and you can do that. And then when he says that this dread is an expression of the dawn situation when a small and feeble ego pits itself against the cosmos, what what it really means, and you can see that a child, let's say, I just imagining a child walking out of his walking out of a cab or something and open and looking out on the city and they've never seen the skyscrapers before and it just goes on and on and it's so beautiful and scary and intimidating and you don't know how to behave there. You don't know what to do. Um, that's the image that comes to my mind pitting a child against the cosmos, you know, but really it's pitting the, it's pitting your burgeoning consciousness against what it perceives as the world, the unconscious, the place where it came from, the thing that's existing all around it all the time. That seems much larger and more powerful than this little burgeoning consciousness, this little baby consciousness. That's the fear pitting the little baby against this giant structure that churns out that churns out being. Yeah, I think I'd be a little bit intimidated myself. All right, then he says, as consciousness increases in strength, fear of the unconscious provides an incentive to development. Vital components in the evolution of consciousness, culture, religion, art, and science spring from the urge to overcome this fear by giving it concrete expression. So that's really interesting. What he's saying here is, you know, we see the world is full of mysteries and the unknown. And to make the mysteries conscious so that we no longer fear them or so that we can harness or control them, that's a way out of that fear. And so it's, a, it's an instinct we have. As our consciousness becomes more, more strong, as we become more independent, more aware of ourself as an independent self, the fear we have of the unconscious, the fear that we have of the unknown within us and in the world all around us, that becomes an incentive for us to develop. It becomes, right, we don't, we don't, we want to remain, we want to live, we don't want to get, you know, uh, sucked back into death or the unconscious. At that point, we want to stand on our own, so we have to find a way of doing it, kicking and screaming, you know, so it gives us an incentive to further separate ourselves and become stronger. And we see that same instinct in the development, not only of our consciousness, but in everything that our consciousness produces, culture, religion, art, and science. And I love that. I love that science is included because it should be. Because just like religion, science is designed to make the mysteries of the world and of ourselves conscious. If we understand them, then we no longer have to be afraid of them. And we do that in religion, but we do that in science. Now, this brings us back to a couple of sort of mythological angles, so this is interesting. It goes like this. 
you know, here we're talking about those associations again. He says, the correlation, consciousness, light, day, and unconsciousness, darkness, night, holds true regardless of sex. Consciousness is masculine, even in women, just as the unconscious is feminine in men. All right, so this is something that, again, Neumann is talking about and Carl Jung talked about. When Jordan Peterson talked about it, he got absolutely lambasted um, because this idea of masculine and feminine is too often, uh, you know, um, conflated with male and female. Um, but that's not at all the point. The point here is that whether you're a man or a woman matters not. You, either, either way, we're all partly conscious and unconscious, partly feminine and masculine. Everyone is. But this is not a gender game. We're not playing politics here. We're talking about psychology. And when he says consciousness, light, and day, and unconsciousness, darkness, and night, those things get clustered together. They become associations with one another, and it's not hard to see why. Why would light and day be associated with consciousness? Because when you become conscious, you can open your fucking eyes and see light and day. When you, before that, before you're conscious, you cannot. So existence, if that can, if you even want to use that word, would be dark, would be unconscious. So you can see how easily we make these associations. And then down the road, you can imagine a god of the sun is something that would represent consciousness. A god of the underworld is somebody who would represent the unconscious. So you can see how the images, how these associations play into the images that we'll see in our religion and in our dreams, by the way. So within everyone are masculine and feminine qualities, conscious and unconscious qualities. The connection of feminine to, f to female and masculine to male is, is false, but is intuited nonetheless. This will become important with the associations that help us to understand such abstract ideas. In myth, as in dream, these forces are often depicted according to these associations. So chaos, or the unconscious, becomes female, becomes a goddess. And order, or consciousness, becomes you know, male, becomes depicted as a god. Then he says... The Ouroboric principle is also associated with the predominance of earth and vegetable symbolism. So you can understand that, if, of course, if the Ouroboros is something that's generative, something that's, again, when you bring the feminine and masculine principles together, the, the conscious and unconscious principles together, what you get is something that's like sex, right? It's a generative act. It creates something. So when, when you look around at your experience and you see creation, the things that come to your mind are fertility, plants, the wild, you know, the vegetables growing out of the earth, the, the berries, you know, on the, on the bush and the apples in the tree, that sort of thing. And the animals giving birth and the, and the human beings giving birth, all of these things get clumped together as generative. And these are more associations, the earth and vegetables, um, becoming associated with this with this abstract mythological understanding of of the great mother of course a mother is somebody that gives birth it's it's a short it's a short step to extend that to the earth that gives birth to vegetable life you know and animal life for that matter All right, he says the stage of the maternal ouroboros is characterized by the child's relation to its mother 
who yields nourishment, but at the same time is a historical period in which man's dependence on the earth and nature is at its greatest. Okay, so that's interesting. So he's saying that this this early part of our psychological development when, where our own consciousness starts to separate itself from, from our, our mother, let's say, that that, we can obviously see that in the relationship of a fetus to a mother, but we can also see that in the historical period of human beings, like a very long historical period where human beings existed hand to mouth and they looked at Mother Earth and the bounty of Mother Earth and nature as as its mother, you know, as the thing that gives human beings nourishment. These tribal people understood the mother the earth to be like everyone's mother, the great mother. And they were fully dependent on her bounty. Because at that point, historically, they hadn't figured out agriculture. They hadn't figured out, you know, much of the technology that we have today. So they would have been much more dependent on the earth. Just like a fetus is is entirely dependent on its mother. And so you see a bridge here between our experience of our burgeoning consciousness and the experience of our lives for 100,000 years. And he goes on, he says... This stage of development is ruled by the image of the mother goddess with the divine child. Mother and child, right? It emphasizes the helpless nature of the child and the protective side of the mother. That makes perfect sense. And then he brings in a mythological uh, parallel. He says, in the form of a goat, she suckles Zeus and protects him from the devouring father. Isis brings Horus back to life when he is stung by a scorpion. And Mary protected the, the Jesus child fleeing from Herod. So here you see different, different examples in mythology of the great mother protecting the child. The she-goat protects Zeus in the, in the story, in the Greek story. Isis protects her son Horus in the Egyptian story. And Mary protects Jesus in the Bible. And that's exactly what our experience was like when our consciousness was burgeoning. And he says, even for the youthful God, the great mother is fate. Okay, so the youthful God, this is the burgeoning ego consciousness. So think about the Ouroboros as, as God, and the new God, the youthful God, is being born within it. So that's consciousness, that's, that's you and I. So that, I just want to make, make uh, the connection that the youthful God is the burgeoning consciousness. It's the new God born from the old God. And to that new God, to that burgeoning consciousness, the great mother is fate. Of course it is. If you were, if you were a fetus within your mother, whatever happens to your mother, that happens to you, right? That's fate. you got no choice in the matter. And that's how our ego consciousness was um, at that stage. He goes on, during, during the phase when consciousness begins to discriminate itself as a separate individual, feelings of mortality, impotence, and isolation color the ego's picture of the Ouroboros, in absolute contrast to the original situation of contentment. So this is interesting. You have, and again, this, we've talked about that in the beginning, but the idea of being one with the universe. If you're a mystic, you know what that means or being, uh, not having a, an independent existence, but being part of your mother, that that's something that, that's something that feels like 
total contentment, you know, to just fall back into the ocean of the, of the nurturing mother, the protecting mother. She'll take care of you. You can bleed right into her. You don't even have to be your self of on your own, you know, don't have to suffer. Just sink back into the unconscious. That that's the original experience of, of, uh, of unconsciousness, you know, before we become conscious and, when we do become conscious, that f- picture of contentment and s- submission turns into one of fear, mortality, impotence, isolation. And the reason is, and you can see how how the co- unconscious that was once the, the good, nurturing mother, you know, this feeling of deep, total contentment, now becomes the, exactly the opposite. You know, something that you're afraid of, something that reminds you that, you know, that you're that you're nothing that you that you're that you're something that's existed for only a blink of an eye and can disappear in in, a, in the blink of an eye you know and you're afraid of the same thing that was once home and this is just a retelling of how the great mother becomes both good and bad and how that corresponds to to the eye it corresponds to our ego our consciousness existing in and of itself the moment that happens, the place that was once our seat of contentment becomes suspect, you know? Then he says, return to the great round. And that's just a reference to completion, to the oneness of the Ouroboros. So return to the great round becomes more difficult as the demands of its own independent existence grow more insistent. For the dawning light of consciousness, the maternal Ouroboros turns to darkness and night. So it's like this, when we become conscious, we recognize the unconscious. That's, that's darkness and night. Well, I don't have to explain to you why we have fear of the darkness and night. Why, why children are scared of the dark, why we're all afraid of death. This, this is what happens to the maternal Ouroboros. And we can see how the place of origins now becomes well, associated with fear and the night and darkness and all kinds of things. And that brings us back to the myth, to the mythological perspective, which says the maternal Ouroboros is succeeded by the figure of the Great Mother. The Great Mother is worshipped in androgynous form, for instance, as the bearded goddess in Cyprus and Carthage. The woman with the beard or phallus, if you don't know phallus just means penis, betrays her Ouroboric character in the non-differentiation between male and female. Its mixed character represents the earliest stage from which the opposites will subsequently be, be differentiated. So, this is interesting. This is saying that when you see images of the maternal Ouroboros, or this great mother goddess, when you see her painted out in um, our religious traditions and mythological traditions, when she's represented, early on she she's... Androgynous. She's she's not a, a female or a male, but she's both. And then you see examples of this great goddess with a beard in Cyprus and Carthage, or with a penis. And he and he's saying that whenever you see these early images of the great mother goddess, you can see these traces of of an earlier belief that the great mother was once one, you know, mother and father together. Which is why you see this great mother with a penis or a beard. And so there is evidence of this earlier idea of an Ouroboros even in these very ancient images of the great mother goddess. 
that was worshipped all over Europe and Asia. He goes on, Only when the ego experiences itself as something distinct and different from the unconscious is the embryonic state overcome. And only then can a conscious system be formed that stands entirely on its own. The early stage of conscious-unconscious relations is reflected in the mythology of the mother goddess and her connection with the sun lover. So remember this image of, of the mother with a divine child. You can imagine Mary and Jesus. You can imagine um, Isis and Horus. You can imagine um, Madonna and child, right? All of these images of the goddess holding her, her, her child. But the myth, he's saying, is of the mother goddess with her son lover. Okay, weird, right? He's going to continue. He says, The Attis, Adonis, Tammuz, and Osiris figures in the Near Eastern cultures are not merely born of a mother. They are their mother's lovers. They are loved and slain by her and are then reborn through her. All right, so this is going to be strange, but we're going to, we're going to explain this. This isn't as incestuous as it might seem. Um, the idea of the goddess and her son lover. First of all, they point out that in all these ancient Middle Eastern religions, there are characters like this across cultures, Attis, Adonis, Tammuz, and Osiris. And you have to realize that Atis, Adonis, and Osiris all sound very similar with that is on the end. Even the A and O sound at the beginning. Um, very likely there's, there's deep historical connections there. Um, but you see all of these very ancient classical religions with this same image of a great goddess and her son who's also the, the lover of the goddess. And why she's you know lover of the goddess is because the god is reborn through her, right? So there has to be this this sort of sexual relationship or this uh, abstract abstracted sexual relationship um, in order for this idea of birth or rebirth to be part of it. But it's also important to understand that the great goddess is the Ouroboros and her son lover is the Ouroboros, right? They were always one thing. That's what they were in the beginning. Because they're one thing, that's why you have this idea of a relation between them. Right, um, you know, like, like a familial relation. That's the closest thing we can we can um, reference to make sense of this. They were once one thing. Now they're now they're multiple things. And so, the goddess and her son lover, you have to understand that's one thing. It's not incestuous because they're one thing. the The divine child is part of the great mother. All right. Then it goes on. By differentiating himself from the unconscious, he becomes the partner of the maternal unconscious. He is her lover as well as her son, but he is not yet strong enough to cope with her. He succumbs to, to her in death and is devoured. The God who dies to rise again is connected with the fertility of the earth and vegetation. The masculine principle, which is, which is the conscious principle, is not yet balancing the maternal female principle, which, which is the unconscious principle. It is still the merest beginning of an independent movement away from the place of origin. All right, so, so this, this paints it, I think, pretty well. It says, by differentiating himself from the unconscious, so the, un, the conscious part is the, son, is the divine child, is the son-lover image. 
when he becomes separate from the unconscious. This is just consciousness being born from the unconscious, just like happened to every single living being ever. When this happens, mythologically, the son is still part of the mother, right? There's still one thing. So mythologically, they become like a pair. They become a partnership. And when you, what you see in the, in the images, like once you have become fully conscious of yourself as an independent being, separate from the unconscious, separate from the cosmos around you, then this idea, this image of the origins of where you come from, when you're telling those stories, they, they become separate characters, the mother and the son. Okay. Now there's a, another mythological um, kind of associative bit that comes up here that is about the serpent. And it says, the serpent is a symbol of the fertilizing phallus. Okay, well, you know, snake looks a lot like a penis. I guess you could, uh, you could easily make that connection. So this is what he's saying. The serpent is a symbol of the fertilizing phallus. This is why the great mother is so often connected with snakes. You know, um, it says not only in uh, Credo-Mycenaean culture and its Greek offshoots, but as far back as Egypt, Phoenicia, and Babylon. And similarly, in the Bible story of paradise, in Ur and Eric, they found very old cult images of the mother goddess with her child, both having the heads of snakes. You can imagine, can you imagine that, like Mary and Jesus image, that Madonna and child image, but both the mother and child have the heads of a snake. Amazing. Okay, so so it's important to understand that the snake becomes associated with this goddess, right? Because the snake represents the phallus. That's the divine child that was born, right? That's separated off from the mother. But she's still, the, the child is still a possession of the great goddess. You know, they were once one thing. Now we're looking at them as though they're separate, but they're always connected. They're always associated with each other. The great mother's holding the baby in her arms. It's hers. So the phallus is hers. The snake is hers. It belongs to her. And this is why you see, as the image is portrayed in the story of the Bible, the snake in the Garden of, of Eden, right? And, and in the um, Mesopotamian image of the mother and child with both snake-headed, you know, this this is how these clouds of associations continue to expand, and suddenly the great the great mother goddess the Ouroboros has this imagery of a mother with a child and of a snake. Okay, when the great mother is represented symbolically, the masculine part of the Ouroboros appears beside her, depicted either as a child or an animal, usually. So the unconscious and conscious have been separated, but they remain paired. So whether the child or, or an animal is paired with the great goddess, you have to understand that animals like children are creatures of instinct. So they're kin with the unconscious, you know, the, the, the place of instinct. And he goes on, all lovers of mother goddesses have certain features in common. They are, in contrast to the heroic figures of mythology, devoid of strength and character, lacking all individuality and initiative. So when you see these, this child or animal um, partner that starts to appear with the images of the mother god, you know that we're 
far enough along this psychological development to have made a distinction between the conscious and unconscious. That's why we now have a mother and child instead of just the Ouroboros. But the child itself, well, as you can, as you can imagine, any baby would be devoid of character and strength, lacking individuality and initiative. A child isn't doing anything. It's just part of the mother. You know, even though it's, it's separate, what is, it, what is a baby? You know, it's basically still part of the mother. It hasn't developed its own uh, character. It hasn't developed its own identity yet. And that's just like the state of a baby. That's the state of consciousness, right, in, in this early, early state. All right, he goes on. He says, the cult of phallic fertility, like the phallic sexual orgy, is everywhere typical of the great mother. All right, so I'll just stop. When he says the cult of phallic fertility, he's just talking about lots of ancient um, examples of um, ancient people's rites and religious practices that had to do with worshiping, uh, well, sexual imagery, including the phallus. There's all kinds of, you know, stone penises and, you know, Hermes, the god from ancient Greece, was originally depicted as just a, a pillar with a face carved on top and a big erect penis sticking out of the bottom. So there's all kinds of images in, in ancient uh, religious traditions to worshiping sexuality and, and the phallus in particular. And he's saying that that is an example of this early great mother religion. He says the grim contrast between these orgiastic feasts in which the youth and his phallus played the central part and the subsequent ritual castration and killing defines archetypally the situation of the adolescent ego under the dominance of the great mother. <laughs> All right, what in the hell? What is he saying here? He's saying that in these, in these ancient religious rites, there was a, a youth that was sacrificed, and that's that sacrifice was either the killing or the castration, the, the cutting off of the genitals of the sacrificial victim. And he's saying that that defines this archetypal situation of the adolescent ego. Well, what, what he's saying here is that the child, right, the divine child is beginning to exist on its own, apart from the great mother, but hasn't been able to break free. She's still, he's still a possession of the great mother. And so his fertilizing um, symbolism, you know, the symbol of the phallus, right? The penis is a fertilizing component. It's something, the seed is there. It's something that's part of and required for fertility. This is something that the goddess takes as her possession. It still belongs to her, right? So if it exists on a sacrificial victim, off with its head, right? Has to be removed, because it belongs to the mother goddess. This is why castration and, and killing of sacrificial victims was a part of this early, very early religious belief. You would remove the penis to give it back to the great mother because it belongs to her, and she's the source of fertility. Man, <laughs> man, oh man. So the ego is a possession of the unconscious. It is separate but not sufficiently independent. So she uses him for, for its original purpose, creation or fertility, and reabsorbs him back into herself through ritual killing or castration. So the relation of 
son lover to great mother is the, an archetypal situation, and the overcoming of it is a precondition for any further development of ego consciousness. And that, I think, is the first hero story, to break free of the unconscious of the great mother. That's the first hero story. Then he says, Worshipped from Egypt to India, from Greece and Asia Minor to darkest Africa, the Great Mother was always regarded as a goddess of the chase and of war. So that's interesting. So now, once we get this notion of uh, sacrifice, you know, we start to see these new associations where the Great Mother Goddess is now associated with the chase, like hunting, let's say, and war. Remember, she's the goddess of life. She's the generative force, but she's also the goddess of death, life and death, opposites in union. So she becomes the goddess of war as much as the goddess of birth. And he goes on, he says, human sacrifices for fertility occur all over the world, in the rites of America and in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Asia and in Northern Europe. The great law that there can be no life without death was easily understood. Right, So early human beings, we see that all around us all the time. Constant cycles of life and death, birth and death and rebirth, the seasons, you know, the cycles, all of it. And so that would have been obvious to us. There can be no life without death. And remember, the great goddess represents both life and death. So now you can understand the idea, maybe a little better, of why sacrifice might be have begun to creep into the picture. And then he says this, the basic phenomena behind woman's connection with blood and fertility is in all likelihood the cessation of the menstrual flow during pregnancy, by which means, in the archaic view, the embryo was built up. This intuitively sensed connection underlies the relationship between blood and fertility. So now you can see that the sacrifice, that the blood involved with the sacrifice is also connected to the woman, to her menstrual cycle, obviously, right? It's also uh, a connection with the moon because the 28-day menstrual cycle is the same cycle as the moon. So you have these associations that, that start to become attached to the great goddess. Now she becomes a goddess of the moon as well as fertility. Now this idea that... Uh, a woman stops menstruating during pregnancy is interesting because when the blood stops flowing, the, the ancient people believed that it was being used within the mother's body to create the new life. The blood creates the new life. That's important because as we continue, consequently, the shedding of blood was originally a sacred act. The earth must drink blood if she is to be fertile. But the mistress of the blood is woman. She has the blood magic that makes life grow. Hence, the same goddess is very often the mistress of fertility, of war, and of hunting. In Egypt, where the great goddesses, be they called Neith or Hathor, Bast or Mut, are not only nourishing goddesses who give and sustain life, but goddesses of savagery, bloodlust, and destruction. So again, if blood is the thing that builds up the embryo and creates the new life in the woman, 
then you can understand that the earth must also drink blood in order to be fertile and, and thus sacrifice. And woman is always associated with that because of menstruation. And, 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 uh, and that's why Neumann says she has the blood magic that makes life grow. Women do, yes, yes. And they represent a more abstract version of that in the Great Mother. And so these great mother goddesses are, are both the god goddesses of life and death, of birth, you know, and, and death, of hunting, of war, of vegetation and fertility. And he goes on, he says, the phallic cult goes together with the sexuality of the adolescent stage. The young lover experiences sex, and in orgasm, the ego dissolves, is transcended in death. On this level, orgasm and death go together. Sexuality here means losing the ego and being overpowered by the female, which is an archetypal experience in puberty. All right, so firstly, to be overpowered by the female, that calls back the, the early stages of, the con of consciousness trying to free itself from the unconscious because every time it fails and sinks back into the unconscious, well, that's the female principle. That's the feminine principle, the unconscious. So to be overpowered by the unconscious is something that it, we're already familiar with. It's a, a very deep archetypal experience, one that goes back to when we were first becoming conscious. And if we just start back from the beginning here where he talks about the phallic cult goes together with the sexuality, with adolescent stage of sexuality, just put yourself back in that, like, you know, early puberty, especially if you're a boy. I don't really know what it was like for a girl because I'm, I'm a boy, but, you know, the hormones are raging and the sexuality uh, instinct is is over overpowering, you know. And he says the young lover experiences sex and in orgasm the ego dissolves. Now I do think that's true. I think that having ego dissolution and orgasm because what happens is you become an experience. Right? When you're ha when you're having an orgasm, you're not you having an orgasm. You are an orgasm. I literally mean that. You become an experience. And that and when you do that you you aren't yourself anymore. And there's something very like that that happens in the mystic intuition and in, in psychedelic mystic experience as an example. And this idea of orgasm is interesting because the French actually call it la petite mort, the little death. And that's what ego dissolution is like. It's like death. And he says, on this level, orgasm and death go together. Sexuality here means losing the ego. So you can understand why orgies might have been a religious um, ritual back back in, in early times, because to ha to recreate, you know, this union of opposites, this this generative union of opposites that was there in the beginning, that that's somehow symbolic of fertility, not only for your family and having more kids in your tribe, but also being able to feed them in the fertility of the world around you. And if you had sex in this orgiastic ritual. And had, and, and had an orgasm that you would have an experience very like the mystics describe. A one with the universe, an ego-death experience, if even for a few seconds, an orgasm. And that when that happens, you do lose yourself. You lose yourself in your lover. And 
that's what he describes as being overpowered by the female and says that it's an archetypal experience in puberty. Interesting. Then he says, insanity is an ever-recurrent symptom of possession by the great mother. So I'm going to stop there for a second, but I do want to mention what we talked about in the last episode, that the word lunacy is associated with the moon, right? Well, oftentimes we say, you know, oh, it's a full moon. People are, all the crazies are out, you know. Um, that association with with lunacy in the moon is con- connects right back to the menstrual cycle and the great mother. And sanity is part of the association with the unconscious. It's also interesting to, to, to mention because there's also this ego death that we've been talking about. It's also sort of a dissociative feeling. It's a dissociation of identity. When you lose yourself, you become either an experience or somebody else or something else. When you lose yourself, you transform. You become something else. And that relates right back to insanity. I mean, when you have a dissociation of your personality, today we call that schizophrenia, you know? And he says that that, this idea of uh, of insanity or dissociation, it's, it's an ever-recurrent symptom of being possessed by the great mother. And in this lies her magical and fearful power. It says, the youth burns with desire even when threatened with death. Well, yeah, you might call that you might call that crazy. Um, I don't know about you, but um, when I was a you know young man and uh, in the throes of puberty at its at its height, let's say, my sex drive was enough to make me make terrible decisions and take terrible risks. So when it says the youth burns with desire even when threatened with death, oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, you, you you would sneak into your to your girlfriend's house in the middle of the night, uh, you know, with all the risk and fear of being caught and punished and, and, you know, worse, you know, who knows? You're willing to take that risk, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's one way of saying being overpowered by the female. I mean, that, that, or, or, or you can call that insane, if, insanity, if you want to. Uh, it just illustrates for you the power, um, the power that that has over you um, consciously. And again, it's an instinctive thing, sex drive, that belongs to the unconscious, that belongs to the great mother. All right, then he says, the great mother is therefore the sorceress who transforms men into animals. Circe, mistress of wild beasts, who sacrificed the male and rends him. The male serves her, for she rules the animal world of the instincts. This explains the, the theriomorphic male consorts of the great mother. All right, so there's a bunch there. But man, this is good. All right, so again, if you put yourself back in your 14-year-old, you know, uh, hormone-raging self as a teenager, uh, I'll, do, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Um, your sex drive absolutely turns you into an animal. I mean, obviously that's symbolic, but it does. It makes you, it, it prevents you from thinking the way you ordinarily would because your motivations are completely overwhelmed with your sex drive. And it, it makes you a follower of your instincts, just like an animal. You can no longer make rational decisions. You can no longer think properly. You know, people say you're thinking with your little head instead of your big head. That's what the fuck they mean. And, and we happen to have a myth that comes right to mind that talks about the great mother goddess turning men into animals. Circe, 
right? Have you guys, you guys remember uh, Odysseus, right? And his buddies all get turned into pigs by, by Circe. That's what happens. The great mother turns men into animals. It makes men sink back into their serving their instincts, right? Serving their instincts. And instincts come from the unconscious. So serving your instincts means serving the great mother, you know? Putting a baby in her because that's what she wants. The great mother wants to be fertile. So so we, so we have these instincts that drive us crazy and bring us together so that we can create. And then, he, then she says, this explains the theriomorphic male consorts of the great mother, which I, I'm really fascinated with these therianthropes, with these uh, half man, half animal figures that people have been creating in art since the beginning of of modern history. And you know, they're painted in the ancient caves in Europe and Asia and elsewhere in Africa and, and Australia and the gods of classical mythology, angels and sphinxes and the Egyptian deities with heads of, of, of animals and all that sort of thing that that exists. It's all over our religious traditions everywhere with no exceptions. And what she's, what, Neumann is saying here is that when you see the great mother accompanied by these half man, half animal creatures, that this is what it relates to. It relates to this, to this association of the unconscious and our instincts and sexuality. And if the conscious part is going to be represented separate from the unconscious part, the great mother being the unconscious part and this divine son being the conscious part, that it would be no surprise to see that image of a half-man, half-animal creature, right? It's partly conscious, partly unconscious, serving its instincts. I just think that's amazing. And it also it also relates back to the um, the image from Mesopotamia of the, of the great mother holding her baby, and both of them have the heads of snakes. Amazing. All right, it goes on, he says, the stronger ego consciousness becomes, the more it is aware of the deadly and stupefying nature of the great goddess. And this just means with increased consciousness comes an increased sense of difference, you know, of differentiation from the source. The more we become ourselves, the less we become God, you know, the less we become what we once were, the unconscious. That brings me to my next section which I'm going to call Domains of the Terrible Mother. All right, now we're going to get, going to get into some real deep mythological interpretation. So here we go. In order to illustrate the archetype of the great mother and her son lover, we shall take as an example the myth of Osiris and Isis. The myth has also been preserved as the oldest fairy tale in the world, namely the story of Bata. So what he's saying here is, we're going to look at this myth, this ancient Egyptian myth, maybe one of the most important uh, Egyptian myth, the story of Isis and Osiris. And that story happens to be one of the very oldest stories known to mankind. It goes back to a story, a related story called, called Bata. All right, here we go. Even in the womb, Isis and Osiris cleave together. So even in the womb, what does that mean? Isis and Osiris are gods. And in the womb, which is the, the place where the gods come from, the very beginning, in that womb they were together, right? 
opposites together. That's the Ouroboros. The womb is the Ouroboros here. It says, but beside her characteristic as a sister wife, Isis also preserves something magical and maternal in her relation with Osiris. For when the latter is dismembered by his brother Set, it is his sister wife Isis who brings about his rebirth, thus proving herself to be at the same time the mother of her brother husband. All right. So again, the incestuous um, connections everywhere are maybe are off-putting, but you have to remember what we're talking about is the Ouroboros, and that's why we begin in the womb. In the womb, in the place of origins, Isis and Osiris cleave together. They're one thing. So that's why Isis and Osiris are brother-sister, because they're simultaneously one and two. They're separate and together in the Ouroboros. Then it says Iris, Isis preserves something of, of her maternal relation with Osiris, being not just her sister, but, excuse me, not just his sister, but his mother. And you can see that because she is the one that brings him back to life when he's killed. So she's responsible for his rebirth. Therefore, she must also be his mother. Now, they're sister and brother because they're in the womb together, but they're also husband and wife, Right? So they're all of these things together. Their relationship is in every way one of wholeness, one of togetherness or oneness. Isis and Osiris aren't two things. They're one thing. And all of these relationships, sister-brother, husband-wife, sister-wife, you know, whatever, mother-son, mother-brother, she's all of those things. Isis and Osiris are all of those things. They're one All right, now, now we're going to talk about Horus, which is the son of Iris, Isis and Osiris. So their coming together creates, um, creates a, obviously, a, a son. It's a generative act. So it says, Horus resumes his father's struggle against the murderer Set. Now, I, I'll mention something Jordan Peterson already mentioned, but I think it's important that the story here involves Set, which is another brother of Isis, and he's the murderous brother. He's the one that kills Osiris. You might say Osiris is the good version and Set is the bad version, but they're really one thing. And um, Set happens to also be uh, the name that later becomes Satan uh, in the Christian and Jewish tradition. So this is what we're dealing with here. All right, so Horus resumes his father's struggle against the murderer Set. Isis defends her brother Set even though he murdered her husband and cut him into pieces. Horus, as his father's avenger, makes himself guilty of matricide. So you can imagine, Osiris is killed by Set, and Isis is struggling to punish Set, because Set is her brother. And, and, in, and in a mythological way, Set and Osiris really are one being. So she can't bring herself to punish Set for killing Osiris. So Horus kills Isis. So Horus, the son, says, if you're not going to kill your brother, who fucking deserves it, I'll kill you, because there's no justice here. So he does. He kills Isis. And I think that's interesting in the story, because you've got Horus, who is the young god, right? The the new consciousness being born from the unconscious. You know, that, that Horus is the baby that, that Isis is holding in her hands, the conscious part of the Ouroboros. And the young god kills Isis. 
And in killing her, what does he do? He, he now stands on his own, free of her influence. So even the story of Horus killing Isis here is the story of consciousness becoming free of, uncon- of the unconscious. Isis is the great mother, the unconscious. He goes on, he says, It is to be noted that Isis conceives Horus by the dead Osiris. The symbolism recurs in the story of Bata, whose wife is made pregnant by a splinter of the felled Bata tree. It becomes more intelligible if we realize that the Earth Mother can only be made fruitful by death and sacrifice. All right, so when it says that Horus is born from the dead Osiris, I just want to let you in on the myth that um, when Set kills Osiris, he chops him up into pieces, including cutting off his penis, just like we talked about earlier in the ancient castration rituals. Cuts off Osiris's penis. Well, it's that penis that's found that, Osi- uh, that Isis then uses to get herself pregnant. So that's an interesting part of the story, but that's how Horus is born, from a dismembered penis of, of his father. All right, then when he says here, um, well, relating it to that story of Bata where, where the splinter uh, makes the wife pregnant, that's the, that's the connection between uh, the splinter of Osiris' body, you might say, being used to get Isis pregnant. Uh, and he says it becomes more intelligible if we, real, we realize that the Earth Mother can only be made fruitful by death and sacrifice. Just like we said before, when we realize that there's a connection between blood and fertility— then it's an easy step to realize that the earth also needs blood in order to be fruitful. And so there, it, it, we get this idea of sacrifice that, be, that is introduced. And so the death of the god, like Osiris being killed and his body chopped up and thrown about, that, that, that that's something that would, well, it would, it would pour the blood of the gods into the earth to fructify it, to make it fruitful, to make it, you know, um, give, give birth to plants and, and, to, and to life, you know? So this idea of sacrifice comes in connected to this idea of blood. There's also this interesting thing here where, where Isis has to rejoin herself with Osiris. She has to rejoin her feminine principle with this masculine principle. And she does that by using his severed penis to get herself pregnant, you know? But she has to rejoin herself with him in order to bring consciousness back into the unconscious, in order to, in order to, in order to make it unconscious, you know, to, to make something unconscious is you could say to kill it, you know, and so this idea of uh, Isis being killed and Osiris being reborn and all this sort of stuff, it, it harkens back to this connection of, well, birth and death, and then. And then we get some contrast here. It says the Can- Canaanite religion. If you guys don't know, these are these are a word that comes up in the Bible to describe some of the tribes that existed alongside the Hebrews in the Middle East. So the, the Canaanite religion, in comparison with the religion of its neighbors, remained relatively primitive. And a scholar named Albright mentions the tendency of Canaanite mythology to bring opposites together so that the god of death and destruction is also the god of life and healing. Just as the goddess Anath is the destroyer, and at the same time the goddess of life, the Ouroboric coincidence of opposites is expressed in the juxtaposition of positive and negative features. So he's just pointing out here that 
that in the Canaanite mythology, you've got a less developed or a more primitive version of this mother goddess, and that she is seen as both the goddess of life and death, and that you see those things unified in, in, in one goddess, which relates back to this, well, to this much older idea of the Ouroboros. And then he says Astarte and Anath, which are Mesopotamian goddesses, Astarte and Anath were both worshipped as Isis in the sanctuary of Philea, which proves the affinity of the goddesses. Like Isis, Anath resuscitates her dead brother husband and vanquishes the evil brother Mat. So we're just making the connection here that this much, much more, perhaps ancient, but more primitive story it mirrors that of Isis, the story of Isis and Osiris. Even in, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, you've got the same story of a brother-husband of the great goddess uh, who vanquishes the evil brother. Um, it's not set in this case, but Mott. Uh, in either case, we're talking about the same story, and it's so close even that these these Mesopotamian goddesses were actually worshipped as the, the Egyptian goddess Isis, as though the people didn't know the difference. The goddess was seen as exactly the same. They recognized this great goddess across cultures and times. And it goes on, as with all goddesses of this type, blood is rain for the great mother, which must drink blood in order to be fruitful. In Astarte, we can also recognize the primordial image of the mistress of the sea. She is the earlier and more savage form of the sea goddess Aphrodite. So again, we're seeing connections between Astarte and Anath from Mesopotamia and the goddess Isis from Egypt. Now, even further, into uh, the goddess Aphrodite from the ancient Greeks, all of which represent the same, originally the same concept of this great mother goddess. And now we see this association with the ocean, right? She's the mistress of the sea. And the sea, I've told you many times, this vast expanse of water that seems to have no end and no beginning, this thing that can hide, you know, a blue whale, right? Easily. It's deep and dark and can contain anything. That has always been a symbol of the unconscious, the sea, water. It's even, it's even that, that way in dream interpretation today. So you can see more that not only is the great mother goddess, the goddess of life and death, of blood, of sacrifice, uh, but she now becomes the goddess of the sea. And she, remember, she's got connections too with snakes and animals and instincts. And you can start to see how the, the very abstract idea of the origin can become over time this, this classical goddess that we are familiar with from, from history. All right, he goes on, he says, Not only are birth and death linked together in Canaanite mythology, but the original hermaphroditic form of the Ouroboros reappears in the relation between the masculine morning star, a star, and the feminine evening star, Ishtar. Androgyny in a deity is a primitive characteristic, and so too is the combination of virginity and fertility in goddesses, and of fertility and castration in gods. So you see, we, we're, we're going to see this union of opposites appear over and over again. And, and it, it happens, like, like we're talking about here, with gods that represent both the masculine and feminine together. So the morning star and the evening star are one. 
you know, and they're two gods, a, a god and a goddess, Astar and Ishtar. And that's something that goes back. It harkens back to the idea of the Ouroboros when there wasn't a distinction between conscious and unconscious, when there wasn't a distinction between masculine and feminine. So the gods that represent that idea are going to be both. And I find it interesting, you know, she brings up this contrast of virginity and fertility. And we can see that, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, our insistence, at least the Catholic insistence on the perpetual virginity of Mary. But uh, but these goddesses were, were very often uh, the goddesses of virginity and fertility at the same time, right? This, this, this bifurcation of opposites that you see happening within the gods. And I think that harkens back even to the Therianthropes that we talked about already. I mean, you can look at a god that's both male and female, like the goddess figure in Carthage that has a beard and a penis, but you can also look at the images that are both man and animal, these Therianthropes, right? Animals represent instincts in the unconscious, and man represents consciousness. So to see something that is imaged as both simultaneously also fits that mold. And with the Therianthropes, we see evidence of that going way, way back into prehistory, into the Paleolithic. It's really interesting that a half-man, half-animal creature, like an angel or a sphinx, uh, represents, at the deepest level, a union of the conscious and the unconscious. It's amazing. All right, then he says... Creto-Aegean culture is dominated by the figure of the Great Mother as a nature goddess. Originally, she was worshipped in caves. She was mistress of the mountains and of wild animals. Snakes and underworld creatures were sacred to her. Her cult evidently dates back to the Stone Age, as is indicated by the fur garments worn in her ritual. Her Great Mother character is revealed in the dress of the goddess, which left the breasts exposed. All right, so you see a lot of that. I mean, if you go back to these Venus figurines, like the Venus of Brassenpoi and the Venus, uh, uh, Venus of um, Willendorf and, and some of these really ancient carvings that we have from the Stone Age, they're images of, of a woman, and she has a very abstract face or head, or, or maybe she doesn't have one at all, and what's emphasized most are, are her uh, sexual characteristics, breasts and hips, uh, very exaggerated and big. And what you see in Crete and the Aegean, these early kind of pre-Greek cultures there, is the same thing. You see this goddess figure who walks around with her, with her tits out, you know, and that's all, you know, intentional to emphasize, you know, her nurturing and, and you know, fertile kind of um, qualities. And central to the great Cretan fertility cult is the bull, the male instrument of fertility, and also its victim. His is the blood of the offerings. The bull symbolizes the son lover of the great mother, who as the Europa of Greek mythology reigned in Crete. She is the consort of the Cretan bull, in which form Zeus ravished her. In later times, the sacrifice, castration, and dismemberment were no longer performed on a human victim, but on an animal. The bull subsequently replaced the sacrifice of the phallus, and in the same way, his horns became phallic symbols. Okay, well, we all know that. I mean, we use the word horny even now. Um, so this is interesting. What, what they're basically doing is they're using one example of this really ancient mother goddess culture in Crete. You know, way, way, way back. And in Crete, they, 
they had bull sacrifices. Bull imagery and bull sacrifices were really important. And so the blood of the bull was supposed to represent the sun lover of the great mother. So remember, you know, in earlier um, cultures, there was a sacrificial victim who was killed or castrated or both. And the blood there was symbolically fertilizing the earth, right? And so the reason that was done is because the great mother still has possession over the divine child. It belongs to her. Hasn't been sufficiently separated yet. So that's why she can cut off his dick and keep it for herself. That's why Isis can impregnate herself with the, with the severed penis of Osiris. Because it's fucking hers. It belongs to her. It's part of her. And so this is what we see in, the, in Crete with the bull. The bull is sacrificed. And the blood is, you know, of that sacrifice is going to f- fertilize the earth. And it's interesting because this great mother goddess um, has a parallel in, in Greek mythology uh, as Europa. And Europa is seduced by Zeus. And um, y- what you have here is the masculine principle coming together with the feminine principle. And, and you know, it's a generative act. Um. And so you and so you see that you know that story told in on in a more modern Greek context, and there you have it. All right, and then Neumann says the bull still appears as an archetypal sexuality and fertility symbol in modern dreams. So just like I referenced about the sea earlier, um, these depth psychology when they do dream interpretations will very often see the bull image appear even in modern human beings with, with a connection to sexuality and fertility. All right, so while we're talking about animals, the pig is a primitive emblem of the great mother. Also the pig, so you might wonder why. But if you, if you lived in an early agricultural uh, society, you wouldn't wonder why. You know, pigs reproduce quickly. You know, that's kind of what they're known for. Um, fuck like pigs, maybe you guys heard that. that uh, uh, or, or rabbits, I guess that, that's also used, that expression. So you can, you can understand how a pig that reproduces quickly is, uh, is going to have a connection with the fertilizing great mother. So it says, Isis, like Nut and Kor Kamsu, appeared as a white sow. The image of Isis sitting with wide open legs on a pig carries the line via Crete in Asia Minor to Greece. So what you see here is many of these great god goddesses uh, in different cultures, Isis, Nut, and Kore, are all a- appearing as a white pig. And there's an image of Isis from, from Egypt, and she's sitting on a pig with her legs spread wide open. And we see that same image in Asia Minor and in Greece. Amazing. All right, now she's talking about um, Sir George Fraser, who, who wrote a book we've talked about before called uh, The Golden Bough. Um, but Neumann says, Fraser demonstrated the identity of Atis, Adonis, and Osiris and their identification with the pig. Remember, Atis, Adonis, and Osiris are all consorts of the Great Mother. They're gods that appear alongside the Great Mother. And in every case, um, there are instances where they're identified with the pig. And then he, then he says something interesting. He says, Wherever the eating of pork is forbidden and the pig is held to be unclean, we may be sure of its original sacred character. Interesting. 
Interesting. So you can see the Jews and the Muslims today forbidden from eating pork and these gods that we're talking about that are supposed to be um, identified with a pig, Atis, Adonis, and Osiris, all of them Mediterranean and Near Eastern cultures, right where the Jews and Muslims live today. Isn't that interesting? All right. So we've got the, uh, we've got the bull, we've got the pig. Um, now he says the spider can be classified among this group of symbols, not only because it devours the male after coitus, but because it symbolizes the female in general who spreads nets for the unwary male. This dangerous aspect is much enhanced by the element of weaving, as we find it in the weird sisters who spin the thread of fate, or the norns who weave the web of the world in which every man is entangled. All right, so... so when we think about just the kind of evil version, the devouring version of the Great Mother, uh, if we look at that side of her, the spider image does seem to fit. And you can see how the association might be made. Because she eats the male after they have sex, just like the praying mantis, she just, you know, destroys the male. You can see that same thing happening in these, uh, in these rituals, these early rituals about the, the male sacrificial victim being killed or castrated. Well, that, that's exactly what happens. To, remember, he, he belongs to the great mother. He's her possession. Just like the spider, when it gets what it needs from the male, it just eats him up. Why? It's fucking hers. It's her possession. She can do what she wants. Because the ego, because consciousness has not sufficiently separated from the unconscious. It still belongs to the, to the Great Mother. And then the, and then the um, spider imagery goes deeper. It's not just about the female eating the male after, after, after sex, after being fertilized. But it also has to do with the, the, the weaving component, right? So weaving is something that's always been historically largely women's work, right? When the, when the men are out hunting or, or, or off to war or whatever, the women are, are doing the household uh, items, including weaving, making clothes and blankets and all kinds of things. And so that's associated already with the, with the, with the female um, population um, by and large. But then he makes this remark about how women spread nets for unwary males and as sexist as that might seem, you sort of know what he's getting at. You know, like we've all heard, we've all heard about uh, about women who say um, that they're pregnant when they're not, so that they can lock down um, a commitment from a man. Um, you know, we all know that there's a certain element of I don't know if you'd call it hunting, but you might um, when you are seeking a, a mate. You know, uh, especially you know, a long-term one, marriage and children and all that, there's some element there about trapping a man, right? And I, and I mean that in the gentlest way possible. But it goes even deeper than that because in the it, there's mythological um, stories about, about exactly this, about goddesses and weaving, including the weird sisters from, from ancient, uh, ancient Greece, the fates, you know, who are responsible for the fates of, of human beings. And uh, if you guys remember the... Um, Disney movie Hercules, the weird sisters, they, they took the thread of life, right? And they cut it with their scissors and that would actually kill the person in life. That thread is the weave that we're, that we're talking about. And we see that in the, in the Norse religion as well with the Norns who do exactly the same thing. They weave the web of the world in which every man is entangled. And you can see how those associations now build up around the goddess. All right, then he says... Wherever the harmful character of the Great Mother predominates, 
and whenever her destructive side appears together with her fruitful womb, the Ouroboros is still operative in the background. In all these cases, the adolescent stage of the ego has not been overcome, nor has the ego yet made itself independent of the unconscious. So we can actually see in these mythological stories and in our religions the images of how we understand our relationship between the conscious and the unconscious worlds. And every, every time we see ourselves meditating on um, and recreating in ritual a great mother who is either a hermaphrodite or in close connection with the male figure that is her subordinate. Whenever you see that, you know that, that the consciousness um, has not been f- fully freed uh, you know, of the unconscious. You know that the people who believe those myths are in a similar state psychologically. And that brings us to the last section, which we're going to call Sun Lover and Great Mother. Oh, it rhymes. Sun Lover and Great Mother. All right, it goes. We can distinguish several stages in the lover's relation to the Great Mother. The earliest is marked by a natural surrender to the power of the Ouroboros. Implicit in this stage is the pious hope that he will be reborn through the Great Mother with no activity on his part. It is the stage of complete impotence against the Ouroboric mother, as we still find it in the Greek tragedy of Oedipus. So this is the idea of, you know, your your consciousness emerging from the unconscious and just sort of sinking right back in. You know, can't quite break free. It just pokes its little head out and sinks right back in. And it, every time it tries, it just gets a little further and sinks back in. And so there's this struggle, but this inability to 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 break free of the unconscious. And there's a certain level of trust, let's say, that when you when you become unconscious, uh, when you allow yourself to sink back in and, and, and to no longer exist on your own, that you do that with hope that you will be reborn, you know, that the, that the power of the Great Mother will allow you to emerge again. And so you're completely submitted to the power of the Great Mother, um, which is just barely different from, from um, where we began, when we were just one thing. You know, it's the earliest stages of it. Then he says, the next stage is formed by the strugglers. In them, fear of the Great Mother is the first sign of self-formation. This fear expresses itself in various forms of flight and resistance. Okay, so th- this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, the moment we the moment we f- see ourselves as independent, and we know that there is an other, right? The Great Mother, the, the place where we came from, that's something that's not us. It's something else. And because we don't know what it is, we are afraid of it. We fear the unknown. That's what we're like. No surprise there. And so... As soon as we, as soon as we feel that fear of the unknown, that's the first hint that we have become conscious on our own, and that is accompanied in our stories by flight and resistance. You know, trying to, you know, continue to move away from the great mother to try to secure our independence. And Neumann goes on, the turning away from the great mother can clearly be seen in the figures of Narcissus, Pentheus, and Hippolytus. All three resist the fiery loves of the great goddess, but are punished by them. 
In the case of Narcissus, who rejects love and then becomes fatally infatuated with his own reflection, the turning towards oneself is obvious enough. The tendency of an ego consciousness that is becoming aware of itself is a necessary feature at this stage. Self-reflection is as characteristic of the pubertal phase of humanity as it is of the pubertal phase of the individual. All right, so I think this is really interesting, and it took me off guard. I, I always thought that the story of Narcissus was the story about narcissism. You know, you've got a uh, beautiful um, male, nar- Narcissus, um, who can have his pick of all the m- most beautiful women in the world, including the goddesses. And he doesn't want any of them. He rejects them all. And what happens is he catches his own reflection in the water, and he just can't bring himself to to leave it. He's so beautiful that he can't bring himself to leave his staring at his own reflection. And so he dies. Um, and I, again, I always thought that story was about narcissism. It's like, don't be full of yourself. <laughs> you know, uh, understand that there's a, there's a whole world out there. Don't, don't, don't be so self-oriented and, and uh, all that. But what Neumann points out is that what, what this is, is a story about the first God, the first conscious creature who resists the wiles and attraction of the unconscious, of the beautiful feminine. Narcissus rejects it by turning towards himself, right? By staring at his own reflection. Isn't that an interesting psychological spin on the story? And that is one of these earliest stories documenting um, the struggle against the unconscious. And Narcissus is one of those early strugglers. Then he says that self-reflection is this characteristic of puberty, uh, of you know, of 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 your you know your individual puberty, right? I mean, you're always looking in the mirror, you're always self-conscious, you're always worried about how you look. Uh, that that is is the same sort of thing that happens in the species, you know, in humanity. That we have to figure out what we are as a species, you know. Uh, then he says, the youth struggling for self-consciousness now begins to have a personal fate. And for him, the great mother becomes deadly. With this, the great revaluation of the feminine begins its conversion into the negative. The growth of self-consciousness thrusts the image of the great mother into the background. And while only the picture of the good mother is retained in consciousness, her terrible aspect is relegated to the unconscious. And in myth, so now we're going to see the perspective in myth, It is no longer the great mother who is the killer, but a hostile animal, for instance, a boar or a bear, with the lamenting figure of the good mother ranged alongside. Okay, so so what what they're saying here is that when consciousness, when the ego finally stands on its own, and and it now can see that there are good and evil qualities to the great mother because it, it's its own man it stands on its own now it can make its own judgment and in you know it judges the great mother is both good and evil and it so it, it pushes that evil part uh, down you know down in, into the unconscious it no longer associates that with um, the great goddess it's the great goddess is seen only as good and I think that's interesting because when we're reading Young's Red Book uh, in the last last episode of it, this is exactly what happens to Carl Jung. You know, he is sitting in his soul, um, trying to understand his relationship uh, to 
to being, to reality, and to God. And uh, he has struggles to understand God as both good and evil. He struggles with that and can't quite make the uh, make the leap to understanding God as both good and evil. He wants to only understand God as good because he believes that to be highest and better and you know worth imitating and all that. And this is what happens. This is what we're describing that happens in our in our fantasy and in our um, in our religion and our mythology that we don't want to focus on the bad part of the great mother. So we just shove it down. We make that part unconscious. We pretend that it doesn't exist. And what happens in our myth is that the evil side of the great mother is no longer seen as a goddess, but will some, will, but will sometimes be seen as, let's say, a wild animal or something that goes alongside the great mother. Just like the divine child was being held in her hands, now we have this this evil version of her that's been removed and abstracted and and it still walks alongside her it's still there in the image but it's been separated somehow so Neumann says the figure of the great mother splits into a negative half represented by an animal and a positive half having human form and you see that all over the place in in classical mythology Um, Freya for instance in Norse mythology she She's pulled in a chariot, right? The chariot's pulled by, by cats. So Freya is always accompanied by cats. And Artemis in the, in Greek mythology is accompanied by a stag. You know, um, uh, Artio in, in the in the Celtic mythology is always accompanied by a bear. That kind of thing. And then he says something interesting. Then he says. The father, right? We've been talking about the mother all this time and the son. So you'd expect the father to come up. And here, here, here it does. He says, The father plays no role at this stage of the young god doomed to die. Indeed, the divine youth is without knowing it his own father in another form. So that's very interesting. It's interesting for lots of reasons. For me, you know, coming from a Christian background, the idea of father and son being one no surprise to me. We, we, we have that idea in the Trinity, which is interesting. But it also goes back to the Ouroboros, and, and maybe this is also an explanation for the Trinity. So it goes like this. The Son, right, the Divine Son, was the masculine force in the Ouroboros. It was once indistinct from the Great Mother. They were one thing, right? The Son fertilized her with herself in the Ouroboros. Right? The masculine and feminine side come together. They're one thing. It fertilizes itself. So the son that it gives birth to is therefore its own father. You see that? The masculine force in the Ouroboros gives birth to the son. So it's its own father. Amazing. And this is why we don't see father imagery coming in. It's also why we don't see... Um, gods, male gods, coming into uh, focus in history until a much later stage in civilization. You know, it's dominated in the early part by goddess imagery and goddesses. All right, he goes on, he says, to begin with, the boar is part of the Ouroboros, but in the end becomes part of the sun himself. He is a symbol of the destructive tendency which turns against itself in the act of self-sacrifice. Okay, so the boar is a symbol of, you know, fertilizing masculine side of the Ouroboros, the boar. 
Um, so originally it was part of the Ouroboros, but then becomes part of the son. That's how the, the, the father becomes his own son. Uh, the son becomes his own father, rather. It says, he is a symbol of the destructive tendency which turns against itself in the act of self-sacrifice. So, the splitting of the Ouroboros, all right, that's to cease being united, which is to, which is to die and, and to be reborn in another form, right? That's what the self-sacrifice is about. It's not, when the Ouroboros sacrifices itself, it doesn't die, it doesn't go away, it simply changes. It's no longer what it once was. It's a different self. So when the Ouroboros was one thing originally, and now we see it as a god, as a goddess with a, with a son in its arms, or as a goddess with an animal by its side, the image has changed, right? The, the identity has changed. So to, to self-sacrifice is to transform in this instance. It's to become something new an independent form. And he goes on, he says, the motif of hostile twin brothers belongs to the symbolism of the great mother. It appears when the ego attains to self-consciousness by dividing himself in two opposing elements, one destructive and the other creative. The stage of the strugglers marks the separation of the conscious ego from the unconscious, but the ego is not yet stable enough to push on to the separation of the first parents and the victorious struggle of the hero. This just means the ego is not yet strong enough to break fully free of the unconscious. And we're entering this new mythological territory that's marked by these hostile twin brothers. All right, so let's get into it. He says, the, the close of puberty is marked by the successful flight of the hero as the rites of initiation testify. All right, so I have to say, the rites of initiation, we, we know about this. These are bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. They're, you know, for me, it was going on a hunting trip with my dad when I was 12 and you know, being out in the woods for a week and learning, learning all the man's stuff. And there's, there's a rite of initiation. There's something, a passage uh, that we send our children through where on the other side of it, they're no longer children anymore, but we considered them to be Adults, you know, if, if you guys have seen the movie 300, there's an awesome, uh, an awesome version of that where, where the uh, Spartan soldiers send their kids at a pretty young age out into the wilderness and they can't return until they've, until they've done some heroic act and uh, they can come back and join, uh, join the uh, state as a full-fledged citizen and adult, uh, that kind of thing. These are rites of initiation and we still have them even today. You know, this is not unusual, but it goes way, way, way back. And he says again, the close of puberty is marked by the successful flight of the hero as the rites of initiation testify. So what, what you're doing in these initiation rituals is you're reenacting the, the flight of the hero, which is, which is the successful um, tearing free of consciousness from unconsciousness. That's the flight of the hero. Consciousness, you, you're the hero. You're the new God who has to break free of the old God in order to exist on your own. And we, we kind of go through those motions in our initiation rituals. Now, you can imagine those rituals were a lot more dangerous in the past. You know, if, like, if we go back to the Spartan example, King Leonidas had to kill a wolf in the movie, and you know, he's like 12 years old, and he brings the wolf carcass back into the, into the uh, village or whatever. Uh, you can imagine that they were dangerous. So Neumann continues, he says, The youths who die by their own hand in puberty 
represent all those who perish in the trials of initiation. So we all know that suicide is something that's particularly common right in that, in that age, that, that burgeoning puberty, and there's all, all sorts of reasons why. But people who, people who end their own life because they don't want to struggle through this flight, if they, they don't want to suffer through what's necessary uh, if they give up, you know, those are people who die and, and don't make it to adulthood, who don't pass the rites of initiation. Then he says this, he says, the strugglers might be described as doomed heroes, right? So the strugglers, those, these, those are the images of, of consciousness trying and trying but failing to break free from the unconscious. And those, he says, might be described as doomed heroes. He says, but for all that, an ego that kills itself is more active, more independent than the sad resignation of the languishing lover. And that's a strange point to make, but it's, but it's powerful. It's to say that some, somebody who can kill itself is more independent, right? You have to have stood on your own enough to be able to kill the thing that you've become. So, so even that represents progress, you'd say, in, in the path towards consciousness, towards independence. Then he says, in separation of the male antagonist from the male female Ouroboros, and in splitting of the great mother into a good mother and her destructive male consort, we can already discern a differentiation of consciousness and a breaking down of the archetype. The separation and the emergence of the twin brother con conflict mark an important stage on the way to the final dissolution of the Ouroboros and consolidation of ego consciousness. So here he's saying that... Um, that when you start seeing this Ouroboros, you know, hermaphroditic male-female uh, image breaking up into uh, a good and a bad side or a male and a female side, as soon as you start seeing that image broken down and more and more gods being created in our myths um, to represent this idea, what that shows you is that the archetype of the Ouroboros is beginning to break down. And that's evidence that you're making progress towards, the, you know, becoming fully conscious. Then he says, just as the motif of the twins is a determining factor in the Egyptian myth of Osiris and Set, and in, the, and in Canaanite mythology, where it appears as the struggle between Baal and Mat, so we find it in the Bible story of Jacob and Esau. So these are the, the hostile brothers, you know, the brothers that, uh, that are fighting uh, one another, or, or that one kills the other, which happens with Osiris and Set. You know, Set kills Osiris. Happens with Baal and Mot. Mot kills Baal. And then he brings up Esau and Jacob, but, I mean, he could have easily brought up Cain and Abel, right? Because, because Cain kills Abel, so that's a more apt analogy. But you can also talk about Jesus and Lucifer or the Antichrist. You know, they're, they're hostile brothers, too. They're part of that same motif. And in Zoroastrianism, you've got Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. You know, you've got the good God and the bad God, and they're always in conflict. So you see these images everywhere. And this represents the next stage. So let's keep, let's keep going. Let's get in deeper. It says, as a consequence of the ego no longer being confronted with the superior power of the great mother, but with another male hostile to him, a conflict situation develops in which self-defense becomes possible for the first time. 
So it's not now, it's not just about becoming a self. See, now the self gets to defend itself. Now it gets to defend itself against being overcome. You know, there was a time when it couldn't overcome the great mother. It sunk back into the unconscious. Now it can stand on its own. And just like the, the Ouroboros fractures, right, into male and female, even the ego here fractures into twins, hostile brothers, the, the good side of you and the bad side of you, the angel on your one shoulder and the devil on your other, right? And that conflict allows you to defend yourself. It allows you to choose what you're going to be, what kind of person you're going to be. So to struggle for identity within oneself makes the ego strong enough to finally distinguish itself as its own independent being. Then he says the masculine principle, which again, remember, that's consciousness, is now strong enough to have reached consciousness of itself. So we call that self-consciousness. That's, what, that's, what, that's how we describe ourselves, you know? He says ego consciousness is no longer chained to the almighty unconscious but has become truly independent and capable of standing alone. With this, we reach the next stage in the evolution of consciousness. And what that next stage is, well, we're going to have to wait for the next, for the next chapter here, but, uh, but let me give you my conclusion. We imagine existence before our existence, a time before time an unconsciousness before the light of consciousness. And we tell a story to make sense of it, of what we do not understand. The story we tell, that of the mythological Ouroboros, is at once the story of the origin of the cosmos and the origin of consciousness. To us, and perhaps in fact, these are one story. Consciousness and cosmos are one and the same thing. Our story continues with our birth, with the birth of consciousness, which rips itself free of the unconscious bit by bit. It is a Herculean effort and constitutes the very first hero story. Remember, though, the peace and bliss of oneness with the Ouroboros, of fetal existence and complete dependence. This is where we go when we fail to break free back into the loving arms of the devouring mother. But fail and try and fail again, we rise to consciousness and fall back into unconsciousness. Over and again we struggle until at last succeed, until at last we become conscious. But there is no time to celebrate our victory. No, never. There is no time to bask in our great accomplishment. No, because in the very moment of our liberation, as in the Garden of Eden, our eyes become opened. We recognize ourself and our will as our own, and in that knowledge we see the Great Mother, the place from which we came and into which we find ourselves now, as something other, no longer part of ourself, no longer strictly nurturing. We find ourselves a stranger within nature, at odds with her. We have estranged ourselves from, from ourselves in order to be conscious. And now everywhere we find estrangement. The world, as with our myths, split in two into opposites. 
Everything becomes both good and evil. Mother nature, mankind, even God itself, even within ourselves. Civil war, as Jung said, we find in ourselves a reflection of the external world. Everything is a combination of consciousness and unconsciousness, chaos and order. And now that we've broken free, now that we stand on our, on our own to witness exactly what it is we are, we recognize something broken and in need of repair. The recognition of good and evil is a call to action, a call to reunite within ourselves what we have estranged. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.